our text for meditation for this 13th Sunday after Trinity is on our Old Testament reading, 2 Chronicles chapter 28, beginning in the 8th verse. Hear the word of our Lord. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria, and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me, and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Yohanan, Berechiah the son of Meshelamoth, Yehiskiah the son of Shalom, and Amsa the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war, and said to them, You shall not bring the captives in here, for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord, in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly, and the men who have been mentioned by name rose and took the captives, and with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Vengeance is a tricky topic, isn't it? We have all heard the scripture which instructs us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Romans 12, verse 19. We are not permitted by our Lord to get revenge on our personal enemies, no matter how bad their past actions against us. Did they slander you? Do not avenge yourself. Did they cancel you and get you fired? Do not avenge yourself. Have they harmed your whole people and led them into terrible sins? Do not avenge yourself. For this reason, it is one of the hardest commands in the whole Bible. We see wickedness in its seeming triumph every day, shoved in our faces, and often harming us personally. There is no end to it. What they do to our friends and our families, to our jobs, to our society, it is torture, and God instructs us to patiently wait for his vengeance. 
instead of taking it for ourselves. Sometimes this is encouraging, because we ought to know that God is a whole lot better at revenge than we are, and he can do it far more powerfully than we can. Other times, that is cold comfort, because he sure does seem to be taking his sweet time, doesn't he? Beloved, we know that it is God's prerogative to avenge, but it is all too easy to start feeling that stubborn desire to take matters into our own hands. Why is this? Because the regenerate Christian, the man who has had the image of God restored to him by baptism, necessarily thirsts for righteousness and justice. Our drive for revenge is rooted, at first, by our earnest desire for a world cleansed of wickedness, and our longing for things to be made right. Over time, as frustration with the world grows, there is a real threat that the desire for righteousness and justice may be twisted by our own sinful flesh into nothing more than hateful rage. So why does God do this then? Why does he give us a righteous longing that things be made right, but then tell us we are barred from actively making things right by our own power? First, it is because our Lord enacts his justice most often through civic power. It is the job of the state not the individual, to make things right. This is good, because a strong government can defeat enemies that are stronger than you, beloved. How tragic would it be if you decided to kill someone who wronged you, and they simply defeated you, humiliated you, and made sure justice is never done. Government is supposed to be a blessing that rewards good deeds and punishes the wicked. They are supposed to be there to make sure this happens smoothly and swiftly. If the state does not do as they should, then God will accomplish vengeance against that government. Second, and this is where our Old Testament reading comes in, we tend to overdo it when we avenge ourselves. We never stop at now we're even. We don't even stop at I got even and then some. Oh no, see, we want systematic slaughter and ritual humiliation. Don't believe me? Look up what the French did to their own women after World War II. Look up what Genghis Khan did to the Western Empire that reneged on a peace treaty. Spoiler, he killed every single human being in it, wiped it from history. Pierre Picot, falsely arrested for spying, tortured and murdered a whole family. And these are just instances of when we feel that there should have been some justice. There is no end to the examples where brutal vengeance was taken for something trivial, meaningless even like the veritable plague of stupid men who murder women for rejecting their romantic advances. Face it, we overdo it, 
and should be ashamed of our wicked desire for revenge. Our Old Testament reading marks one of the greatest, barely averted vengeances in history, and there is a great deal of mercy being shown, serving as a great lesson for us. Was there cause for revenge? Certainly, both inside and outside of Judah. But would revenge have been desirable? Absolutely not. Ahaz, the wicked king of Judah, had greatly angered God and persecuted true believers. He not only copied the idolatry and the other sins of the northern kingdom wholesale, he outdid them with an ugly glee. The northern Israelites worshipped God incorrectly, using golden calves in high places. King Ahaz went further by worshipping any god he could except the true god, even making idols himself. The northern kingdom permitted anyone to be a priest, whether they were Levite or not. King Ahaz went a step further by desecrating the Jerusalem temple and stopping all of its operations until Hezekiah, his son, reopened it. Wicked rulers in Israel, like Jezebel, killed the prophets and persecuted believers. King Ahaz killed some of his own sons in addition to his persecutions. A godly man in Judah would be right in desiring to see this king deposed, harshly even. Unfortunately, godly men were few and far between, as was typical for Judah. As goes the king, so go the people. Meanwhile, other kingdoms had a bone to pick with Judah. During this time, the Assyrian Empire was strong-arming every nation it could, forcing entire peoples into oppression and slavery. The northern Israelites and the Syrians decided to ally with one another and stand strong in independence against an Assyrian threat. They did so despite their past wars and differences. When they invited King Ahaz to join this confederation, he responded by forging deeper ties with the Assyrians. In other words, he stabbed his kin, the Israelites, in the back, and turned his back on the Syrians who, at times, enjoyed friendly relations with Judah. Needless to say, war was bound to break out at some point. Now, to be certain, northern Israel and Syria were not good people. Few, if any of them, were believers, and scripture teaches that they had wicked motivations in Isaiah chapter 7. Any vengeance they held in their hearts was unjustified. But at the outbreak of the war between them and Judah, God granted them great victory at the beginning. His wrath was against Judah and her evil under Ahaz the king, so the initial fighting cost Judah 120,000 lives. Here, with this first blood drawn, God avenged Ahaz's children, the faithful in his nation, and acted with justice against the countless blasphemies of an unrighteous king. So there was a moment 
in which God took vengeance through Israel and Syria. Many people have asked me, what if God picks me to be the man doling out justice? If that were the case, I tell them, they wouldn't like doing it God's way, because our Lord will demand restraint on their part. There is a point in which the vessels God works through are accomplishing his vengeance. There is a point beyond that where they may fall into human vengeance. You very well may be called, according to your office, to accomplish justice in one area or another. But doing so faithfully is going to be difficult, likely unsatisfying, and with constant vigilance to make it not our own act. Otherwise, again, we will go too far. In our Old Testament reading, God prevents this very thing from happening. After having won a great battle, the armies of Israel and Syria take 200,000 captives. Beloved, for the sake of comparison, that is ten times the number taken into the Babylonian captivity that brought Judah to its knees. If the northern kingdom had gone through with the captivity and displacement of 200,000 souls from Judah, that entire people would have been erased from history. That means no righteous Hezekiah to take the throne after Ahaz's death. That means no restoration of true worship. That means no Jerusalem nor temple. Thankfully, God sent a prophet to remind the Israelites that we are still required to love our enemies, even if we are to enact justice against them. Oded, the prophet, warns them, Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me, and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Turn back. No more. You already have terrible sins of your own, and now you have gone too far in your vengeance. If you do not return the captives, God will accomplish vengeance against you. Something about this prophetic oracle cuts to the quick, and the chiefs of Ephraim decide to make things right. Adding to Oded's warning, they utter this command, You shall not bring the captives in here, for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. In other words, they say, we are already in hot water with God for our idolatry and injustice. Why on earth would we make the wrath worse for ourselves? And the people listen, immediately using the spoils of war to bring comfort to the captives they took, clothing and feeding them in a manner very similar to the Good Samaritan, they bring them back to territory in Judah. And thus they avoided the severe guilt and punishment that a new, devastating exile would have brought.
God did not permit this nation-destroying exile to happen. Though Judah was severely corrupt, he sent a prophet to turn the tide of enslavement. Why, though? Why show such mercy to an undeserving people when most of us looking on would probably say that Syria and Ephraim were in the right? It is evident by the closure of the temple that the entire country was in the midst of a massive apostasy. They deserved the captivity and far worse. If we imagine ourselves being amid the throng of Judah's captives, in the middle of the 200,000 being carried away in chains, it would be hard not to shrug at the impending death of the nation. This was a long time coming, we might whisper. But it was not carried out. The people were instead returned home. Why? First, we worship a merciful God who wants to show us his mercy. God commands us to not take vengeance for ourselves because in times like our Old Testament reading, his mercy on undeserving sinners shines forth, and that requires some restraint in matters of justice. Nobody in Judah merited this deliverance the same way that none of us merit the salvation given to us by our Lord Christ. God sent a prophet to save wicked idolaters from captivity, and he sent his only son to save us from eternal damnation. Our Heavenly Father is in the business of showing mercy and forgiveness, even in the midst of a people receiving their just deserts. Though this life is full of suffering, which we deserve, Though we feel the looming judgment, no matter how bad things get, he is there to offer a free gift of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. It is an inherent part of his character to do so, and we rejoice to see it. Second, and more specifically to the text, God showed his mercy for the sake of the ultimate mercy, the gospel. If Judah had disappeared into some alienated diaspora, and if Jerusalem had been obliterated, then there would have been no place for the atonement. The total erasure of Judah means the destruction of everything that led up to Christ. The southern kingdom figures heavily in the prophecies concerning our Savior, from the Davidic line to the presence of the temple to the promises that God's people would see him face to face as he was pierced for our transgressions. If Ephraim and Syria had been permitted to take their temporal rage out fully on the children of Judah, one might say that all would not have been lost but it would have violated many precious promises of the gospel found in the Old Testament. Through this one man, the prophet Oded, and all who listened to him, the plan of salvation was protected by God's mercy. Do you see now, beloved? We ask why God puts such strict limitations on our sense of justice, 
forbidding us from taking vengeance and placing restrictions on what we do when justice is carried out through us. God shows in Scripture that this is for the sake of mercy, for the sake of salvation, and for the unfolding of the plans he has on account of those who love him. And so our Lord Christ tells us, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Luke 6, verse 36. We shouldn't want to harm when we can show mercy instead. And if we are in a position where we are duty-bound to enact justice, it should feel difficult, especially when execution is required. But how do we get there? How do we inculcate a sense of wisdom and mercy that pleases our Lord? I have three suggestions to get you started in thinking about it. First, remember that God loves your enemies. Christ died for them. You don't have to like your enemies, you do not have to be friends with them, and you do not even have to be around them. If things pop off and you are assaulted, you can defend yourself against them. But as we are called to imitate our Lord, we must love them, even if loving them means simply not giving them what we think they deserve. Second, and I hope this is tattooed on all of our minds, there was a time when your enemy was a baby. At some point, each one of our enemies was a little toddler asking their mother for more juice. The evil that you see them committing now is a tragedy more than some irredeemable offense. This is someone's child we're talking about who grew to permit wickedness to reign in their mortal bodies. The offenses that they have committed against you are a cause for prayer, not a cause for revenge. Pray imprecatory prayers if you must, but let the desire for justice stay there, if there is the temptation to take things further than they must go. Third, whether we feel like it or not, we must advocate for God's truth. If he says that we are not to take revenge for ourselves and instead to show mercy when we can, then we must say the same. The children of Ephraim listened to a single prophet, thus serving as God's hands and feet in protecting the promises of the gospel. What do you suppose God will accomplish when your brother, racked with fury over evil done to him, begins to breathe out his thoughts of murder and you stop him? How great would it be to know that you kept him from a prison sentence or worse? Perhaps even souls are saved on account of this. Beloved, God has shown us mercy and not taken the full vengeance which we do not deserve. May we walk forward in and with the same mercy and restraint that he has shown us, listening carefully to the words of Oded the prophet just as the children of Ephraim did. In doing so, while we still seek righteousness here on earth, we shall be blessed moving forward. 
Now the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.